0: 17, as far as the marketplace of Levnos, was a guiding point for mariners in the whole northern Aegean, for the ancient Greeks Cape Vallure was long the boundary stone to the unknown wastes of the western Mediterranean, just as later the pillars of Hercules marked the portals to the tenebrosium of the stormy Atlantic, so the sacred promontory Cape Street Vincent of the Iberian Peninsula defined for Greeks and Romans the southwestern limit of the habitable world. Centuries later the Portuguese marked their advance down the west coast of Africa first by Cape Non which so long said no to the struggling mariner then by Cape Bojador and finally by Cape Bird in coastwise navigation minor headlands and inshore islands were points to steer by and in that early maritime colonization which had chiefly a commercial aim they formed the favorite spots for trading stations the Phoenicians in their home country fixed their settlements by preference on small capes, like Sidon and Byblos, or on inshore islets, like Tyre and Argus and for their colonies and trading stations they chose similar sites. Whether on the coast of Sicily, Spain, or Morocco, Carthage was located on a small hill crowned cape projecting out into the Bay of Carthage. The two promontories embracing the inlet were etched with settlements, especially the northern arm, which held Utica and Hippo the latter on the site of the modern French naval station of Bezerra. In the surly Hellenic world, when Greek sea power was in its infancy, owing to the fear of piracy, cities were placed a few miles back from the coast, but with the partial cessation of this evil, sites on shore and peninsula were preferred as being more accessible to commerce, and such of the older towns as were in comparatively easy reach of the seaboard established there each its own port. Thus we find the ancient urban pairs of Orgos and Nauplia. Trilesian and Pogone, Mycenae and Iones, Corinth commanding its Aegean port of Sancre, eight miles away on the Saronic Gulf to catch the Asiatic trade, and connected by a walled thoroughfare a mile and a half long with Lechium, a second harbor on the Corinthian Gulf which served the Italian commerce. In the same group belonged Athens and its Piraeus, Megari and Pegai, Pergamus and Euloi in western Asia Minor. These ancient twin cities may be taken to mark the two borders of the coast zone. Like the modern ones which we have considered above, their historical development has shown an advance from the inner toward the outer edge, owing to different causes. However, the retired location of the Baltic and North Sea towns of Germany served as a partial protection against the pirates who, in the Middle Ages, scoured these coasts. Lubeck, originally located nearer the sea than at present, and frequently demolished by them, was finally rebuilt farther inland up the Trave River. Later, the port of Tribamunde grew up at the mouth of the little estuary. The early history of maritime colonization shows in general two geographic phases, first, the appropriation of the islet and headland outskirts of the seaboard, and later it may be much later in advance toward the inner edge of the coast, or yet farther into the interior. Progress from the earlier to the material phase depends upon the social and economic development of the colonizers, as reflected in their valuation of territorial area. The first phase. The outcome of a low estimate of the value of land, is best represented by the Phoenician and earliest Greek colonies, whose purposes were chiefly commercial, and who sought nearly such readily accessible coastal points as furnished the best trading stations on the highway of the Mediterranean and the adjacent seas. The earlier Greek colonies, like those of the Triopium promontory forming the southwestern angle of Asia Minor, Chalcidice, Thracian Chersonsus, Kelchidon, Byzantium, the Ponic Heraclea, and Sinope, were situated on peninsulas or headlands, that would afford a convenient anchor ground, or, like Syracuse and Mytilene, on small inshore islets, which were soon outgrown, and from which the towns then spread to the mainland nearby, the advantages of such sites lay in their accessibility to commerce, and in their natural protection against the attack of strange or hostile mainland tribes, for a nation of merchants, Satisfied with the large returns but also with the ephemeral power of middlemen, these considerations sufficed. While the Phoenician trading posts in Africa dotted the outer rim of the coast, the inner edge of the zone was indicated by Libyan or Ethiopian towns, where the inhabitants of the interior bartered their ivory and skins for the products of fire, so that commercial expansion of the Arabs down the east coast of Africa in the first and again in the 10th century seized upon the offshore islands of Zanzibar, Hamba, and Mafia the small inshore islets like Mombasa and Lamu, and the whole outer rim of the coast from the equator southward to the Revuma River, the Sultan of Zanzibar, heir to this coastal strip, had not expanded it a decade ago, when he had to relinquish the long thread of his continental possessions, but when a people has advanced to a higher conception of colonization as an outlet for national as well as commercial expansion. And when it sees that the permanent prosperity of both race and trade in the new locality depends upon the occupation of larger tracts of territory and the development of local resources as a basis for exchanges, their settlements spread from the outer rim of the coasts to its inner edge and yet beyond, if alluvial plains and river highways are present to tempt inland expansion, such was the history of many later colonies of the Greeks and Carthaginians, and especially of most modern colonial movements for these have been dominated by a higher estimate of the value of land. After the long Atlantic journey, the outposts of the American coast were welcome resting places to the early European voyagers, but, owing to their restricted area and therefore limited productivity, they were soon abandoned, or became mere bases for real and expansion. The little island of Cuddyunk, off southern Massachusetts, was the site of Gosnold's abortive attempt at colonization in 1602 like Raleigh's attempt on Roanoke Island in 1585, and the later one of Potham on the eastern headland of Casco Bay, the pilgrims paused at the extremity of Cape Cobb, and again on Clark's Island, before fixing their settlement on Plymouth Bay. Monhegan Island, off the main coast, was the site of an early English trading post, which, however, lasted only from 1623 to 1626, and the same dates fix the beginning and end of a fishing and trading station established on Cape Hen and removed later to Salem Harbor. The Swedes made their first settlement in America on Cape Henlopen at the entrance of Delaware Bay, but their next, only seven years later, they located well up the estuary of the Delaware River. Thus for the modern colonist the outer edge of the coast is nearly the gateway of the land. From it he passes rapidly to the settlement of the interior. Wherever fertile soil and abundant resources promise a due return upon his labor, since it is from the land, as the inhabited portion of the earth's surface, that all maritime movements emanate, and to the land that all oversea migrations are directed, the reciprocal relations between land and sea are largely determined by the degree of accessibility existing between the two. This depends primarily upon the articulation of a land mass, whether it presents an unbroken contour like Africa and India, or whether like Europe and Norway, it drops a fringe of peninsulas and a shower of islands into the bordering ocean. Mere distance from the sea bar is a country from its vivifying contact. Every protrusion of an ocean artery into the heart of a continent makes that heart feel the pulse of life on far off. Unseen shores. The Baltic Inlet, which makes a seaport of St. Petersburg 800 miles 1.300 kilometers back from the western rim of Europe, brings Atlantic civilization to this half Asiatic side of the continent. The solid front presented by the Iberian Peninsula and Africa to the Atlantic has a narrow crack at Gibraltar. Once the Mediterranean penetrates inland 2.300 miles 3.700 kilometers, and converts the western foot of the Caucasus and the roots of the Lebanon Mountains into a seaboard, by means of the Arabian Sea, the Indian Ocean runs northward 1.300 miles 2.200 kilometers from Cape Comor into meet the Indus Delta and then turns westward 700 miles farther through the Oman and Persian Gulfs to receive the boats from the Tigris and Euphrates. Such marine inlets create islands and peninsulas, which are characterized by proximity to the sea on all or many sides, and in the interior of the continents they produce every degree of nearness, shading off into inaccessible remoteness from the watery highway of the deep. The success with which such indentations open up the interior of the continents depends upon the length of the illets and the size of the land mass in question. Africa's huge area and in broken contour combine to hold the sea at arm's length. Europe's deep-running inlets open that small continent so effectively that Kazan, Russia's most eastern city of considerable size, is only 750 miles 1.200 kilometers distant from the nearest White Sea, Baltic, and is off ports, Asia. The largest of all the continents, despite a succession of big indentations that invade its periphery from Sinai Peninsula to East Cape, has a vast inland area hopelessly far from the surrounding oceans. In order to determine the coast articulation of any country or continent, Karl Ritter and his followers divided area by shoreline, the latter a purely mathematical line representing the total contour length. By this method Europe's ratio is one linear mile of coast to a 174 square miles of area. Australia's 1 colon 224, Asia's 1 colon 490, and Africa's 1 colon 700. This means that Europe's proportion of coast is three times that of Asia and four times that of Africa, that a country like Norway, with a shoreline of 12.000 miles traced in and out along the fjords and around the larger islands, has only 10 square miles of area for every mile of seaboard, while Germany, with every detail of its littoral included in the measurement, has only 1.515 miles of shoreline and a ratio of 1 mile of coast to every 159 square miles of area. The criticism has been made against this method that it compares to unlike measures, square and linear, which moreover increase or decrease in markedly different degrees, according as larger or smaller units are used. But for the purposes of anthropogeography the method is valid, inasmuch as it shows the amount of area dependent for its marine outline upon each mile of littoral. A coast, like every other boundary, performs the important function of intermediary in the intercourse of a land with its neighbors, hence the length of the sea boundary materially affects this function. Area and coastline are not dead mathematical quantities, but like organs of one body stand in close reciprocal activity, and can be understood only in the light of their persistent mutual relations. The division of the area of a land by the length of its coastline yields a quotient which to the anthropogeographer is not a dried figure but an index to the possible relations between seaboard and interior. A comparison of some of these ratios will illustrate this fact. Germany's shoreline, traced in contour without including details, measures 787 miles, this is just one-fifth that of Italy and two-fifths that of France, so that it is short. But since Germany's area is nearly twice Italy's and a little larger than that of France, it has 267 square miles of territory for every mile of coast while Italy has only 28 square miles, and France 106. Germany has towns that are 434 miles from the nearest seaboard, but in Italy the most inland point is only 148 miles from the Mediterranean. If we turn now to the United States and adopt Mendenhall's estimate of its general or contour coastline as 5.705 miles, we find that our country has 530 square miles of area dependent for its outlet upon each mile of seaboard. This means that our coast has a heavy task imposed upon it, and that its commercial and political importance is correspondingly enhanced, that the extension of our Gulf of Mexico literal by the purchase of Florida and the annexation of Texas were measures of self-preservation, and that the unbroken contour and mountain-walled face of our Pacific littoral is a serious national handicap. But this method is open to the legitimate and fundamental criticism that, starting from the conception of a coast as a mere line instead of a zone, It ignores all those features which belong to every littoral as a strip of the Earth's surface location, geologic structure, relief, area, accessibility to the sea in front and to the land behind, all which vary from one part of the world's seaboard to another, and serve to differentiate the human history of every littoral. Moreover, of all parts of the Earth's surface, the coast as the hem of the sea and land, combining the characters of each, is most complex. It is the coast as a human habitat that primarily concerns anthropogeography. A careful analysis of the multifarious influences modifying one another in this mingled environment of land and water reveals an intricate interplay of geographic forces, varying from inland basin to marginal sea, from marginal sea to open ocean, and changing from one historical period to another an interplay so mercurial that it could find only a most inadequate expression in the rigid mathematical formula of Karl Ritter as the coast, then, is the border zone between the solid, inhabited land and the mobile, and in deep. Two important factors in its history are the accessibility of its backcountry on the one hand, and the accessibility of the sea on the other. A literal population barred from its hinterland by mountain range or steep plateau escarpment or desert tract feels little influence from the land, level or fertile soil is too limited in amount to draw in the growing people. Intercourse is too difficult and infrequent. Transportation too slow and costly. Hence the inhabitants of such a coast are forced to look seaward for their racial and commercial expansion. Even if the paucity of good harbors limits the accessibility of the sea, they must lead a somewhat detached and independent existence. So far as the territory behind them is concerned, here the coast. As a peripheral organ of the interior. As the outlet for its products. The market for its foreign exchanges. And the medium for intercourse with its maritime neighbors sees its special function impaired, but it takes advantage of its isolation and the protection of a long sea boundary to detach itself politically from its hinterland, as the histories of Phoenicia, the Aegean coast of Asia Minor, Dalmatia, the republics of Amalthe, Venice, and Genoa, the county of Barcelona, and Portugal abundantly prove, at the same time it profits by its seaboard location to utilize the more varied fields of maritime enterprise before it. In lieu of the more or less forbidden territory behind it, the height and width of the landward barrier, the number and practicability of the passways across it, and especially the value of the hinterland's products in relation to their bulk, determine the amount of intercourse between that hinterland and its mountain or desert barred littoral. The interior is most effectively cut off from the periphery, where a mountain range or a plateau escarpment traces the inner line of the coastland, as in the province of Liguria in northern Italy, Dalmatia the western or Malabar coast of India, most parts of Africa, and long stretches of the Pacific littoral of the Americas, the highland that backs the Norwegian coast is crossed by only one railroad, that passing through the Trondheim depression, and this barrier has served to keep Norway's historical connection with Sweden far less intimate than with Denmark. The long inlet of the Adriatic, bringing the sea well into the heart of southern Europe, has seen nevertheless a relatively small maritime development. Bowing to the wall of mountains that everywhere shuts out the hinterland of its coasts, the greatness of Venice was intimately connected with the Brenner Pass over the Alps on the one hand, and the trade of the eastern Mediterranean on the other. Despite Austro-Hungary's crucial interest in the northeast corner of the Adriatic as a maritime outlet for this vast inland empire, and its Herculean efforts at Trieste and Fiume to create harbors and to connect them by transmontane railroads with the valley of the Danube, the maritime development of this coast is still restricted, and much of Austria's trade goes out northward by German ports, farther south along the Dalmatian and Albanian coasts. The deep and sheltered bays between the half-submerged routes of the Dinaric Alps have developed only local importance, because they lack practicable connection with the interior. This was their history to in early Greek and Roman days for they found only scant support in the few caravans that crossed by the Roman road to Derechaim to exchange the merchandise of the Aegean for the products of the Ionian Isles. Spain has always suffered from the fact that her bare, arid, and improductive tableland almost everywhere rises steeply from her fertile and densely populated coasts, and therefore that the two have been unable to cooperate either for the production of a large maritime commerce or for national political unity. Here the diverse conditions of the littoral and the wall of the great central terrace of the country had emphasized that tendency to defection that belongs to every periphery, and therefore necessitated a strong centralized government to consolidate the rest of maritime provinces with their diverse Galician, Basque, Catalonian, and Andalusian folk into a one nation with the Castilians of the plateau, where mountain systems run out endwise into the sea. The longitudinal valleys with their drainage streams open natural highways from the interior to the coast. The structure has made the Atlantic side of the Iberian Peninsula far more open in its Mediterranean front, and therefore contributed to its leadership in maritime affairs since 1450. So from the shores of Thrace to the southern point of the Peloponnesus, all the valleys of Greece open out on the eastern or Asiatic side. Here every mountain flanked bay has had its own small hinterland to draw upon and every such interior has been accessible to the civilization of the Aegean, here was concentrated the maritime and cultural life of Hellas, the northern half of Indian Colombia, by way of the parallel Otrado, Rio Caco, and Magdalena Valleys, has supported the activities of its Caribbean littoral, and through these avenues has received such foreign influences as might penetrate to Ilan Bogota, in like manner. The mountain ridged peninsula of farther India keeps its interior in touch with its leading ports through its intermontane valleys of the Irrawaddy, Selwyn, Meenam, and Mekong rivers. Low coasts rising by easy gradients to wide plains, like those of northern France, Germany, southern Russia, and the Gulf seaboard of the United States, profit by an and extensive hinterland, occasionally. However, This advantage is curtailed by a political boundary reinforced by a high protective tariff, as Holland, Belgium, and East Prussia know to their sorrow. These low hems of the land, however, often meet physical obstructions to a ready communications with the interior in the silt dillets, shallow lagoons, marshes, or mangrove swamps of the littoral itself. Here the larger drainage streams give access across this amphibian belt to the solid land behind where they flow into a tide-swept bay like the North Sea or the English Channel. They scour out their beds and preserve the connection between sea and land, but debouchment into a tideless basin like the Caspian or the Gulf of Mexico, even for such mighty streams as the Volga and the Mississippi, sees the slow silting up of their mouths and the restriction of their agency in opening up the hinterland. Thus the character of the bordering sea may help to determine the accessibility of the coast from the land side. Its accessibility from the sea depends primarily upon its degree of articulation, and this articulation depends upon whether the littoral belt has suffered elevation or subsidence. When the inshore sea rests upon an uplifted bottom, the contour of the coast is smooth and unbroken. Because most of the irregularities of surface have been overlaid by a deposit of waste from the land, so it offers no harbor except here and there a silt river mouth, while it shelves off through a broad amphibian belt of tidal marsh, lagoon and sand reef to a shallow sea, such as the coast of New Jersey, most of the Gulf seaboard of the United States and Mexico, the Coromandel coast of India, and the long, low littoral of Upper Guinea. Such coasts harbor a population of fishermen living along the strands of their placid lagoons, and stimulate a timid inshore navigation which sometimes develops to extensive coastwise intercourse, where a network of lagoons and deltaic channels forms a long inshore passage, as in Upper Guinea but which fears the break of the surf outside. The rivers draining these low uplifted lands are deflected from their straight path to the sea by coastwise deposits, and idly trail along for miles just inside the outer beach, or they are split up into numerous offshoots among the silt beds of a delta, to find their way by shallow, tortuous channels to the ocean, so that they abate their value as highways between sea and land. The silt mouths of the Nile excluded the larger vessels even of Augustus Caesar's time and admitted only their lighters. Just as today the lower Rufaygi River loses much of its value to German East Africa because of its scant hospitality to vessels coming from the sea. The effect of subsidence, even on a low coastal plain, is to increase accessibility from the sea by flooding the previous river valleys and transforming them into a succession of long shallow inlets, alternating with lower hilly tongues of land. Such embodied coasts form our Atlantic seaboard from Delaware Bay, through Chesapeake Bay to Pamlico Sound, the North Sea face of England, the funnel-shaped Ferdin, or Firth's on the eastern side of Jutland and Schleswig-Holstein, and the ragged sounds or Bodin, that indent the Baltic shore of Germany from the Bay of Lubeck to the mouth of the Oder River, although the shallowness of the bordering sea and the sandbars and sand reefs which characterize all flat coasts here also exclude the largest vessels. Such coasts have nevertheless ample contact with both land and sea. They tend to develop, therefore, the activities appropriate to both, a fertile soil and abundant local resources, as in Tidewater Maryland and Virginia, make the land more attractive than the sea, the inhabitants become farmers rather than sailors. On the other hand, an embodied coastland promising little return to the labor of tillage, but with abundant fisheries and a superior location for maritime trade, is sure to profit by the accessible sea, and achieve the predominant maritime activity which characterized the medieval hands towns of northern Germany and colonial New England. Subsidence that brings the beat of the surf against the boulder reliefs of the land produces a ragged, indented coast, deep water inlets penetrating far into the country, hilly or mountainous tongues of land running far out into the sea and breaking up into a swarm of islands and rocks. Whose outer limits indicate approximately the old pre-diluvial line of shore. Such are the fjord regions of Norway, southern Alaska, British Columbia, Greenland, and southern Chile, the Rias or submerged river valley coast of northwestern Spain, and the deeply sunken mountain flank of Dalmatia, whose every lateral valley has become a bay or a strait between mainland and island. All these coasts are characterized by a close succession of inlets, a limited amount of level country for settlement or cultivation and in their rear a steep slope impeding communication with their hinterland, inaccessibility from the land, a high degree of accessibility from the sea, and a paucity of local resources unite to thrust the inhabitants of such coasts out upon the deep, to make of them fishermen, seamen, and ocean carriers. The same result follows where no barrier on the land side exists, but where a granitic or glaciated soil in the interior discourages agriculture and landward expansion, as in Brittany, Maine and Newfoundland. In all these the land repels and the sea attracts. Brittany furnishes one-fifth of all the sailors in France's merchant marine, and its pelagic fishermen sweep the seas from Newfoundland to Iceland. Three-fifths of the maritime activity of the whole Austrian Empire is confined to the ragged coast of Dalmatia, which furnishes today most of the sailors for the imperial marine, just as in Roman days it manned the Adriatic fleet of the Caesars, the Haida, Chimchian, And lingut Indians of the ragged western coast of British Columbia and southern Alaska spread their villages on the narrow tide-swept hem of the land, and subsist chiefly by the generosity of the deep, they are poor landsmen, but excellent boatmakers and seamen, venturing sometimes twenty-five miles out to sea to gather birds' eggs from the outermost fringe of rocks, as areas of elevation or subsidence are, as a rule, extensive, it follows that coasts usually present long stretches of smooth simple shoreline or a long succession of alternating inlet and headland. Therefore different littoral belts show marked contrasts in their degree of accessibility to the sea, and their harbors appear in extensive groups of one-type fjords, river estuaries, sand or coral reef lagoons, and embodied mountain routes. A sudden change in relief or in geologic history sees one of these types immediately succeeded by a long-drawn group of a different type. Such a contrast is found between the Baltic and North Sea ports of Denmark and Germany. The eastern and southern seaboards of England, the eastern and western sides of Scotland, and the Pacific littoral of North America north and south of Juan Fuca Strait, attended by a contrasted history, a common morphological history, marked by mountain uplift, glaciation, and subsidence, has given an historical development similar in not a few respects to the fjord coasts of New England, Norway, Iceland, Greenland, the Alaskan, Thanhinel, and Southern Chile. Large subsidence areas on the Mediterranean coasts from the Strait of Gibraltar to the Bosporus have in essential features duplicated each other's histories, just as the low and fertile shores of the Baltic from Finland to the Skagerrak, have had much in common in their past development, where, however, a purely local subsidence, as in Cumberland Bay and Old Calabria, on the elsewhere low monotonous stretch of the Upper Guinea Coast, or a single great river estuary, as in the Low Plate and the Columbia, affords a protected anchorage on an otherwise portless shore. Such inlets assume increased importance. In the long and broken reach of our Pacific seaboard, San Francisco Bay and the Columbia Estuary are of inestimable value, while, by the Treaty of 1848 with Mexico, the international boundary line was made to bend slightly south of west from the mouth of the Gila River to the coast, in order to include in the United States territory the excellent harbor of San Diego. The mere nicks in the rim of Southwest Africa constituting Walfish Bay and Angra Queen, assume considerable value as trading stations and places of refuge along that 1.200 mile reach of inhospitable coast extending from Cape Town north to Great Fish Bay. It is worthy of notice in passing that, though both of these small inlets lie within the territory of German Southwest Africa, Wallfish Bay with 20 miles of coast on either side is a British possession and that two tiny islets which commands the entrance to the harbour of Angra-Pequina, also belong to Great Britain, on the uniform coast of East Africa. The single considerable indentation formed by Delagoa Bay assumes immense importance, which, however, is due in part to the mineral wealth of its transvaal hinterland, from this point northward for 35 degrees of latitude, a river mouth, like that fixing the site of Deira, or an inshore islet affording protected harborage like that of Mombasa, serves as the single ocean gateway of a vast territory, and forms the terminus of a railroad proof of its importance. The maritime evolution of all amply embodied coasts, except in Arctic and sub-Arctic regions inimical to all historical development, shows in its highest stage the gradual elimination of minor ports, and the concentration of maritime activity in a few favored ones, which had the deepest and most capacious harbors and the best river, canal, or railroad connection with the interior. The earlier stages are marked by a multiplicity of ports, showing in general activity nearly similar in amount and in kind. England's merchant marine in the 14th century was distributed in a large group of small but important ports on the southern coast, all which, owing to their favorable location, were engaged in the French and Flemish trade, and in another group on the east coast, reaching from Hull to Colchester, which participated in the Flemish, Norwegian, and Baltic trade. Most of these have now declined before the overpowering competition of a few such seaboard marts as London, Hull, and Southampton. The introduction of steam trawlers into the fishing fleets has in like manner led to the concentration of the fishermen in a few large ports with good railroad facilities, such as Aberdeen and Grimsby, while the fishing villages that fringe the whole eastern and southern coasts have been gradually depopulated. So in colonial days. When New England was little more than a cordon of settlements along that rock-bound littoral, almost every inlet had its port actively engaged in coastwise and foreign commerce in the West Indies and the Guinea coast, in cod and mackerel fisheries, in whaling and shipbuilding, and this with only slight local variations. This widespread homogeneity of maritime activity has been succeeded by strict localization and differentiation, and reduction from many to few ports. So, for the whole Atlantic seaboard of the United States. Evolution of seaports has been marked by increase of size attended by decrease of numbers. A well dissected coast, giving ample contact with the sea, often fails nevertheless to achieve historical importance, unless outlying islands are present to ease the transition from inshore to pelagic navigation, and to tempt to a wider maritime enterprise. The long sweep of the European coast from northern Norway to Brittany has place.